Welcome, you're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Not exactly. Beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theater, but we didn't just do theater. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we called paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which really just means we like sticking sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and find their new reality, their new status quo. So in the previous episode, we introduced you to Ali and Red as well as to the Chinese man in the back, as he was called, the geomancer who built his hut underground into the side of the hill. He was the first resident on the hill. And that's according to the second and third residents on the hill, which were Indian Jim and Louie. Indian Jim and Louie uh, were the last of the so-called Bowery bums. They were winos and drinking buddies. Indian Jim called himself that because he said he was part Dutch, part German, and part Cherokee Indian. Uh, he looked like Santa Claus. Santa Claus? No, he didn't look like Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. He had a white beard and rosy red cheeks because he was an alcoholic. Well, yeah, maybe a bad Santa or something. Right, <laughs> bad Santa. Like, what was that movie with, oh, what's his name? Uh, you, well, we don't... Uh, Billy. Billy, Billy, Billy Bob, Bob Thornton. Yeah, right. Yes, bad Santa. Yeah. Right. So Indian Jim would say, damn it, I'm the last true alcoholic up here. <laughs> and he always got mad at Louis because Louis would spend money on something other than wine, which was sacrilege in Jim's book, Indian Jim's book. Like, for instance, Louis would spend money on cat food. He took care of the cats uh, that people dumped on the hill. You know, I don't want these cats anymore. Here's a bunch of people. They'll take care of them. Yeah, sure. Like, take them to the vet regularly and get their eye infections treated. Well, and, yeah, let's not get into the vet uh, stuff because... Those, <laughs> those <laughs> right. cats were so sad. Right. But, yeah, Louis loved the cats, and he even had a little cat cemetery next to his in Indian Jim's hut. Yeah, Louis would tell me how he'd go into... Uh, the bodegas after he was out scavenging, looking for cans and bottles. That's mostly how he made his living uh, on the deposit. But he'd go into a bodega and the owner or whoever, the cashier, would see him buying the, the cat food. He said they'd try to direct him to the human cat food, but... Uh, Not the human food, you mean? <laughs> yeah, the human food, right. Human tuna. <laughs> right. Um, but the, the thing I found very interesting, was he said he could tell the difference between a cat and a rat when they climbed over his chest when he was sleeping, and he'd be able to pet one or shoo the other one away, depending on which one it was. Right, <laughs> yeah. Thanks Thanks for that image, Louie. That is always going to stick with me. So, Louie, he was the kindest, gentlest man you could imagine, and he was the only person on the hill whose last name we knew. He, he, he was called, I mean, he, his name was Lewis Watson. And the reason we know his name is because Louis was kind of a professional homeless person, you could say, right? Um, he had a whole centerfold spread in the New York Times, for example, 
you know, we're not just talking some alternative paper or some you know, local reporter that came up and wanted to die. He had lots and lots of articles uh, written about him. And he was in films. He had films made about him. Yeah, well, he was professional in the sense that when the media came and wanted to do a story on the homeless, Louis was right there. You know, he was, he was good at communicating his story in a very honest and upfront way. Yeah, uh, he was also very good at playing, you know, the happy-go-lucky wino. He was uh, guileless and self-effacing. Well, and he, he was like, you know, straight out of central casting. Right, but I mean, he—the uh, the thing about him when he told the story, it was pro-capitalism. In other words, whenever you saw him on a video or whatever, telling a story, it was pro-capitalism. I mean, he was adamant that he chose the life he led. And the system was not to blame. Well, he was also a very good carpenter. He helped everybody up on the hill uh, build their huts. Yes, when he was sober. But when he was drunk, not so much. Like, I remember one time he and Indian Jim were working on their hut together. They were drunk, and they got into a fight. And uh, they started uh, whipping pink paint, which I don't know where they got the pink paint all over each other. So they were covered with pink paint, as were the cats. Um, earlier that day, that same day in the f- of the fight, Louis was in a music video that was being shot on the Manhattan Bridge. Mm. Uh, again, you know, the, the Louis was your homeless casting of choice. And they came back five days later wanting to finish the shoot, but Louis was drunk. He was still too drunk to participate, and he still was covered in pink paint. So, you know, yeah. he couldn't necessarily be counted on if you had more than a one-day shoot. Right. Um, when we got to the hill, Indian Jim told me a couple nights later that he said when he woke up from his bender and came out and saw a teepee on the hill, he said, I thought I died and went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I I was so freaked out, I had to go back inside and have another drink, as though he needed an excuse to have another drink. But uh, a couple nights before Thanksgiving, which is when we put up the teepee, there was a big fire on the hill, and the fire department yet again had to come and put it out. Um, But actually, you should really tell that story. Because you you were there, I wasn't, of Indian Jim. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. After the fire was out and all the commotion was over and everything like that, he had missed the whole thing. He had slept through it, you know. But he came crawling out of his, uh, his hut completely unfazed or anything and he just came out and says uh, uh could somebody borrow me a cigarette i'll pay you back wednesday you know <laughs> i'll pay you back next wednesday <laughs> like what louise was he gonna get a check or something on wednesday no, well no no it's a, it's a joke you know it's like i mean i, I think of probably a, from popeye you know there was a character there wimpy who uh would always say uh if you buy me a hamburger today, I'll pay you back on Wednesday or something like that. Oh, okay. I, 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 that. I think a lot of the, you know, whatever, Bowery guys would do that. They'd say, could, could you borrow me a cigarette or 
borrow me a drink. I'll pay you back Wednesday. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, but it was that fire that allowed us to put up the TV because the fire department came and put it out. And then the next day, sanitation came and cleaned away all the garbage, also the previous garbage that was there. Because other than that, we wouldn't have even had room to put up the teepee. And so speaking of Thanksgiving, one of the first residents I was inst- introduced to on the hill was Ace. Uh, Ace was a genial, ingratiating black man of about 35. He had scars on his face and missing teeth. And he, like Red, was one of the heroin addicts and HIV positive. And remember, back then, there was no treatment or cure for AIDS. Uh, So the people that were HIV positive, which was the heroin addicts, they, they knew they were doomed. Well, yeah, and I mean, even back then, uh, nobody knew much about AIDS at all. They were all, everybody was afraid of it. I mean, the EMT people, I think we mentioned already, wouldn't even come up into the hill if somebody was sick. You'd have to bring them out to the sidewalk, and uh, that was that was the state back then. Yeah, sure, everybody was afraid, and there were needles everywhere. It, it you know, it was a scary, scary uh, state of affairs back then. So Ace hustled money however he could without begging. He hated beggars. I think we mentioned this before that a a lot of the people on the hill uh, were thieves and, or I should say those that were thieves, they hated beggars. They felt very strongly Well, I mean, there weren't many beggars up on the hill. I mean, they were all doing something else. Donald was the only one, one of the brothers, who always stood up on the Manhattan Bridge and over by the Holland Tunnel. And he made a good living begging. And I think most people were just jealous that he could get so much money doing it. You know, Ace, before, when I was hanging out there for the six weeks, Ace was one of the first people that sort of talked with me a lot. And so one time um, I gave him a job with Man With Band. I worked for Charlie Zuckerman. Remember Charlie? Charlie, Charlie, Charlie yeah. Zuckerman. He said, they don't make them like me anymore. <laughs> and it yeah, was true. He was a props guy for Broadway. And at the time, you were working on the Grand Hotel right, right. I road was, show, right? Right, right. So I was collecting props with Charlie on that. And I brought um, Ace in and um, to work with me, uh, you know, in the band. And the thing I, I remember most was how much he stunk of smoke, of wet smoke, you know? It just filled the van, and, you know, it was hard to do anything around anybody else because he he smelled like that. Yeah, well, that was the smell, actually, that I associate most with the hill. In fact, um, it doesn't ever go away. Now, 30 years later, when I open the plastic containers... Uh, in our basement that contained the teepee. Yes, the teepee cover still exists, and all of my, as do all my drawings of the tarot deck that I did. I open that plastic container, and it just stinks of smoke to this very day. Right. I mean, it's it's almost like a metaphor. I mean, the smells, you know, trigger memories and stuff, and I think, you know, that smell of smoke always triggered the memory of... Uh, Wet smoke. Right. It's like you have a little flashback of the entire experience right. as a whole, like a little movie that that smell, that wet smoke smell triggers. Right. But at the end of that day, I paid uh, Ace Cash, you know, I gave him money, and I finally got a handle on that day on what really 
what the ruling party up in, at the hill was uh, before we moved up there, which was cash. Cash was king. So that day, Ace was the king, and everybody circled around him, and he shared whatever dope he bought with the cash with others. And uh, I remember he also revealed to me that he, he wanted to be a writer, mm -hmm. and uh, he, he kept thinking that we could find a typewriter for him, remember? A and manual remember how, typewriter. Right, a wanted. manual typewriter so he could type up there. And I mean, we were looking for one. I think most of the time we were up on the hill and never really found one. No. Everybody uses electric typewriters then. All the writers we knew, you know, they, they had gotten rid of their manual a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. But he had won some kind of a poetry contest in prison. Um, though he said that somebody actually stole his work and published it, submitted it, and published it under their own name. Uh, but the point is that he really wanted to be a writer, and he asked us to find him that, that typewriter. Before Ace got to the hill, he lived in an abandoned car for a while, and then in that park uh, just north of the hill. Oh, yeah, then yeah. he was hospitalized for pneumonia, and as a condition of his release, he was sent to a shelter. But he said there he saw somebody murdered uh, for his sneakers, so he left. And he also said he that shelters are like prison, and he said, and then I've done too much time in my life. And back then, and still now, Nobody wants to go to shelters. Shelters are dangerous. Shelters are prison-like. And you could never tempt anybody on the hill with, I'll find a shelter for you, right? So Ace was a, a really kind man and very easy to talk to. He made me extremely comfortable right from the start. And he loved sweet potatoes, so I made sure on that Thanksgiving day that I brought him extra helpings of sweet potatoes. He, you know, he laughed easily, and right. he went out of his way to make me and everybody feel welcome. He, he was just a good guy. An another very prominent uh, presence on the Hill was Sammy. Oh, yeah. Sammy. Um, <laughs> he... You know, he wasn't an addict like the other most of the others, but he he occasionally smoked crack. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> yeah, he was a really hard-working Puerto Rican entrepreneur. I would say his story was that he got married young and had two kids. His wife was a Jehovah's Witness and divorced him when he spent most of his free time at cockfights. <laughs> <laughs> so she moved herself and the kids out of Puerto Rico and moved to New York, and he followed her, but it didn't work out. Uh, he also made and sold leather goods outside of Bloomingdale's mm. for a while. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, no. and, uh, but then he figured out that selling cocaine was more lucrative, and he spent a few months at Rikers, and that cured him of selling cocaine. He didn't go back to that, um, and, you know, that, that was a sort of a turning point in his life. And then he said he ran into an old girlfriend, Lisa, who supposedly was living on the hill, I which I find a little hard to believe, but who knows? You know, maybe she was, in fact, one of the early people who slept up there in a, in a 
cardboard box or something. Um, so he decided that he could save the money on his apartment and move in with her. Yeah, and he, he eventually built uh, La Ponderosa, this crazy-like compound there, bigger than any other place up there. And uh, he, he got the name because somebody says it, it looked like Bonanza's Ponderosa. <laughs> so uh, he, he put a wagon wheel out front. And he painted in big letters, La Ponderosa, on the outside of the hut. Right. (laughs) Um, And he and Lisa are the ones that gave us that uh, beautiful scarf as a housewarming present. Also made us feel very welcome. Yeah, and he was the first to bring electricity into the hill. He... uh, plugged into the one of the street lamps and brought it right up in there. And so he, he uh, you know, there's only two ways to heat the huts in winter. And that's either by coal, where you burn down the wood until it turns into coal, and then set it inside the hut. Or, what could go wrong? Well, that's what everything went wrong with exactly. that. Of course, that's why there were so many fires up there. Of course, burning coal in your little small hut has other respiratory problems. Back then, too, the, uh, there was a, a new form of tuberculosis, TB, that was uh, going around in all the... Uh, resistant strain, right? Yeah, it was in all the shelters, and of course, coming in huts the same way that it would come in the shelters, close quarters, you know? Right. So, Sammy also charged people for everything. <laughs> Everything. Okay. Yeah, especially electricity. <laughs> right? Including hooking them up to electric, right? Mm-hmm. Which he's, again, siphoned off of a light pole, which is kind of incredible if you think about it, right? You have to open up the base of the light pole, run wiring <laughs> yeah. under the sidewalk, cover it up with a little no, cement. No, no, at the, the beginning it wasn't that. That was the problem. It was just wire on top of the ground. Later on, we, I mean, collectively, we we put it underneath the sidewalk. But at the beginning, it was just up there in the wire so people could see it. A lot of times, it was running down the side of the bridge for a while because it came from a lamp up on the bridge. Oh, really? Oh, okay. So anyway, Sammy charged everybody, including for rent in La Ponderosa if they needed a little room. If they, for instance, Louie lived there for a while. When he got into a fight with Indian Jim, he asked uh, Sammy to move in with him and he would charge five bucks a day. Mm So he was, yeah, he was a wheeler dealer and, and he had stuff, so much stuff that he hoarded um, and everybody else pretty much lived hand to mouth. So they really felt like Sammy was torturing them, right? <laughs> like dangling it in front of their agonized noses, right? But he also laughed a lot and he was, he was a real goofball. Like, I remember one time, Mr. Rose, as Juan called him, Mr. Rose for La Ponderosa. (laughs) (laughs) Sammy was nailing something on his hut, and he called over to Ali. Hey, Ali, I had a dream last night. I was Tarzan, and you were Jane, and we made little bambinos together. (laughs) (laughs) And Ali, deadpan, looked over at me and just shook his head. Ali once said that he thought Sammy was going to die on the hill because he liked it there so much. And he did. You know, he he liked living there. And he probably made enough money to rent a small place, but he liked the independence Mm. of La Ponderosa. And also he was the big cheese, you know. (laughs) And I think he liked that even more. Yeah, he was the Ben Cartwright of the (laughs) hill, right? Exactly. 
And the Ponderosa, you know, he worked on it all the time. It was solid. It was insulated. He barely needed any heat in the winter because it was just, it was a true home. So although Ali and Sammy could sometimes have a pretty contentious relationship, partially it's because they were all, they were both really smart. And by the way, Ali had a master's degree in business from the University of Michigan. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And when Ali got arrested and he was gone for, I don't know, maybe a couple of months. I don't quite remember how long, but he, he disappeared for a while. But when Ali came back to the hill, Sammy went up to him all manly-like and shook his head, hand, I mean, and, and, and welcomed him back to the hill, you know. And, and that was after Juan goes, Ali, Ali, and ran up to him and hugged mm-hmm. him. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it was, it was like a little community there, right? <laughs> Very much. I mean, Sammy had uh, his girlfriend, Lisa, I, I think she probably turned tricks uh, like some of the other women on the hill. You know, it was hard for women to make the theft kind of game, although Sue did a lot of that. But, it, you know, we'll talk about her. But uh, Lisa would go out. Uh, Sammy, left- yeah, Sammy wouldn't let anybody talk to her. No, and, but she left every morning with really heavy makeup, which made you think that. And then she- come back a few hours later, right. though. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, not, not to a job regular job I guess you know but uh, you know that's basically what it was up on the hill where it was a man's world and yeah. the women were attached to the, to the uh, men in either as protection and sometimes almost similar to a pimp r- raging yeah they were they they pimped them right and um, well, a, a f- some others weren't that but it was uh, that was common up right. there so right it was a man's world and uh, Sammy had a real tight rein on Lisa. Like one time, she came out of La Ponderosa and said, good morning to me. And Sammy said, I already said that. <laughs> and then she asked him, can I give a message to Red from Tito? And Sammy was just silent, didn't say a word. So she went back inside to the Ponderosa, right? And I found out later that she had actually just had a baby a month or so before we got to the hill and that she had three kids with Sammy and they sent all three of them to her mother in Virginia yeah. to be raised. Well, Sammy was a big presence on a hill. I mean, he was a slight guy, and uh, but he did everything big. You know, <laughs> he smiled big, he joked big, you know, he got angry big. He took up a lot of space, both with his compound and his personality, right? <laughs> and he, he was a workaholic, really. He was working all the time. He all got up time. early, and he had some part-time jobs now and then, like the uh, tile place a few blocks down. He would unload tile for them sometimes. But one thing he got paid to do was haul away skids from different businesses. From deliveries. Yeah, because nobody wanted the skids after they were empty. And that they were good for two reasons, because they were burnt up there, even summer or whatever, they burn them in the barrel. The other stuff that he scavenged and found all over the place, he would sell it every couple weeks at a, a flea market over in Soho. I gave him a ride over there in the van once, but otherwise he had a big, one of those big mail carts that he'd put all the stuff in and set up a little booth in a, a flea market in Soho. So, you know, he, he was enterprising like that. 
Very much. And he could be a real hard ass. He once said, people just take advantage of me when I'm nice, so I'm better off being an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) But he was also a real softy, though, uh, with a great sense of humor. One time, somebody dropped a puppy off on the hill, a little lab mix, and he was so excited about that puppy. He just loved that little dog. But of course, it didn't take long before the puppy chased a car and got hit and killed. And he was devastated, devastated. Oh, that puppy. In his quiet way, you know. Yeah, Yeah, that puppy. (laughs) Yeah, I, I remember that was a horrible thing because mm. I don't know who got the idea but instead of burying the puppy uh, I hope it wasn't my idea but I went <laughs> along with it is uh, why don't we cremate the puppy <sighs> so the idea was to get the barrel fire barrel going real hot and put the puppy in there and cremate it it was just a it, total disaster I, I no okay never mind yeah all right you you called me um yeah okay at pacific studio telling me what you're doing and i said you're doing yeah. what yeah do you know so, how much heat it takes to cremate yeah the, uh, so eventually the puppy did get buried but i mean first that horrible scene had to happen so but uh, you know talking about sammy though we <laughs> we got a really introduced Juan because the <laughs> two of them were a constant comedy routine that was going on all the time. Their dialogue was just hilarious back and forth. It was just insane. Juan was a very simple black Puerto Rican man. Um, his parents supposedly owned an apartment building in Greenwich Village. His brother was a cop and uh, he had a wife and two kids, but he screwed up a lot and he would get fired and one time he got hurt on the job and that really took him out of commission and then his life fell apart. But we knew him mainly as this man-child with the intellect of, what, a 12-year-old maybe? Mm. You know, uh, Sammy loved to mock him because one time, and he never let him forget this one, Juan came running up to the hill and from far away, like over across Canal Street, everybody, hey, Sammy, my mom gave me $5 for crack. My mother gave me $5 for crack. And (laughs) Sammy would never let him forget that. He would mock him all the time. Hey, Juan, did your mother give you five bucks for crack? Shut up, Juan, was by far... (laughs) The most often used expression on the hill, yeah. mostly by Sammy. Shut yeah. up, Juan. Yeah, but we all <laughs> laughed at Juan. Juan would come into the yard. He'd be yelling before he'd get into the yard. Good wood, good wood. Of wood he had collected, you know, for to the fire. To this fires. day, we say good wood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we're working on something ourselves, good wood. <laughs> yeah, right. So. <laughs> um, and one day, Juan came back uh, terribly sad and was telling everybody in tears that his grandmother died. And it was heart-wrenching. It was just, uh, yeah, because Juan was just a sweet, innocent kind of guy. And, you know, when things started turning bad on the hill, dark and violent, Juan really suffered because they would beat him up. And, you know, he'd have his beat him up so bad that one time he had to get his jaw wired and then he got hit in the jaw after it was wired and he was just unable to properly stand up for himself yeah i think that sort of happened to 
quite a few people as the population changed and it became different. We're talking about early on when everything was really a, a community and everybody was getting along with each other. You know, later on when it got darker and violent, there wasn't people to stand up for each other. You know, they didn't as much as they did back then. And well, that's because all the relationships changed. New people started moving in. Drugs started to be sold on the hill, yeah. which was not allowed at the beginning. You had to score elsewhere. You could mm. do drugs on the hill. But that's when things went south. Anyway, so that's uh, Indian Jim and Louie, Sammy, Lisa, and Juan. And as you can already tell, you know, it was, it was a community. They lived in harmony. Harmony? <laughs> yeah, sort of. Harmony. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. It was they fun. They fought like cats and dogs, but was, they laughed. They laughed a yeah, lot also, right. right? They liked each other, and they looked out for each other. Right. So that is uh, some more of the initial core residents, and we'll continue with that in the next episode. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit that bell so that you get notified when our next episode is out. And check out our website at thievestheater.org, where you can also buy Gabrielle's book. <laughs> and follow us on Instagram and tw Twitter at uh, TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I on the Hill. Thanks for listening. <laughs>